Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. On the program today, vaccine hardline. The only way that we know to go through COVID-19, this variant and any future variant is through vaccination. As the unvaccinated take up the most space in overcrowded ICUs, is it time to accommodate them or take a harder line? Should there be stricter vaccine mandates like in Quebec or new accommodations, as Aaron O'Toole argues? We'll ask the Premier of New Brunswick, Blaine Higgs, about his approach, and then the Scrum will debate the politics of the unvaccinated. Then, housing bubble. With prices growing far more quickly than incomes, risk the possibility of a major housing crash when interest rates go up. Housing costs are skyrocketing. Is it at a dangerous level? Where is inflation going in the new year? We'll sit down with the former governor of the Bank of Canada, David Dodge, to find out. Plus, democracy in danger. I remember not knowing if I would make it out of our seat of democracy alive or if our democracy itself would survive. A year after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, months from the Olympics in China, and weeks into Russia amassing 100,000 troops on the Ukraine border, does Canada have a new plan to stand up for democracies? The Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie joins us. When will she release Canada's new policy on China? We'll find out. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. A two-front battle. They are, of course, the most difficult to fight. And domestically, Canada's fighting to defeat the fifth wave of COVID. Are mandatory vaccines really the best method to do so? Meantime, democracies around the world are under siege. In the U.S., the divisions around the insurrection events of last January the 6th continue to deepen. Meantime, months before the Olympics, China is flexing its muscles, cracking down on rights in Hong Kong, refusing to stop human rights abuses against the Uyghur population. The Prime Minister just appointed a new national security advisor, Jody Thomas, who's been outspoken about threats to Canada from China in the Arctic. And Russia has amassed up to 100,000 troops on the doorstep of Ukraine. With all that, does Canada have new plans for a new and dangerous world. Joining me now is the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to you. Uh, good to see you back Thank here. You. Let's just start Thank domestically. Uh, there are two divergent views on the unvaccinated population who are currently taking up a disproportionate number of spaces in the ICUs. And ICUs and hospitals, as you know, are under threat. The Prime Minister dismissed them during the election, as you know, on French television, as not only anti-science, but racist. Uh, Meantime, the province of Quebec has taken a hard line saying vaccine passports are necessary in order to go to places like a liquor store. Aaron O'Toole argues that uh, we should accommodate them because of staff shortages. What's your view? How do you deal with the unvaccinated? Well, first and foremost, having gone through COVID myself, Evan, uh, recently and, and my spouse as well, the fact that we were uh, both uh, doubly vaccinated uh, for some time and the fact that we were healthy individuals made a huge difference because symptoms are real and COVID is real. And so we believe in the importance of vaccines. We know that it is the best way, the only way to get through the pandemic. And that after two years of fighting this pandemic, while Canadians have done so much and have sacrificed so much, we need to make sure that they get vaccinated. And to that extent, if uh, you know people that are watching us are able to have access to a third dose, please go and get it, and it's never too late for a first dose as well. 
Okay, but what about mandatory vaccines? Quebec is saying 50% of the ICUs and hospitals are filled with the unvaccinated. We've got to take a hard line. You can't buy a bottle of booze from the SAQ there unless you have a, uh, a vaccine passport. And by the way, they're going to make it not just two doses, but three doses. That's the hard line. Aaron O'Toole says this is going to lead to shortages. We should accommodate the unvaccinated with rapid tests. What's your view? More mandatory uh, mandates for the provinces? I know it's provincial jurisdiction. Or more accommodation? Yes, indeed, it is juris uh, provincial jurisdiction. But we went through an election, and that was part of the conversation. And at the time, we said at the federal level what we thought was the best way to fight the pandemic. It was that all federal employees needed to be vaccinated. Everybody taking a plane, a train should be vaccinated. The Conservatives at the time, unfortunately, were not in favor of that approach. So we will continue to push the importance of vaccines and to also work with our experts, which right. are advising us. Let me go to, to foreign policy and, and China. The U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. agree a, a genocide is taking place against the, the Uyghur population, the Muslim minority population. We're months away from the Olympics. How does the U.K. and the Uni United States have enough evidence to conclude that there's a genocide and your government, the Canadian government, does not? Why not? What are you waiting for? So a couple of things. First and foremost, we're very concerned with the allegations of genocide uh, happening in uh, the Xinjiang uh, province. That's exactly why uh, we decided not to send officials to the Beijing Olympics, because we're calling on China to uh, make sure that they show transparency and that there can be a UN envoy sent to the region to do an entire inquiry. And in that sense, we've been also working shoulder to shoulder with the UK, with Australia, uh, with the US, and also Japan recently that said that they would not be sending officials. But, that's, but, uh, they, but they all conclude there's a genocide taking place in the not, but Canada hasn't. And waiting for China to allow an envoy in is like putting the fox in charge of the chickens. Why are we waiting on China? If the US has enough evidence, and the UK has enough evidence. Have you seen that evidence? And are you suggesting that's not still enough to conclude there's a genocide taking place? See, Canada's position when it comes to, first and foremost, China has always been to call out any form of human rights violations. And we said it even recently on the question of Hong Kong, and we'll continue to do so. That's the first point. Second point is Canada's position has always been to use multilateral organizations, including the UN, to make sure that we would push our preoccupations. And that's why what we've said is we presented a resolution before the Human Rights Committee of the UN to really uh, make sure that China would right. show transparency and therefore right. that the inquiry would be. Right. And, you know, that is, we think, the best way to get to where we want, which is ultimately right. uh, the end of any form of discrimination against the Uyghurs. When will Canada make a call on Huawei uh, as whether or not Huawei will be part of uh, the 5G? Our, our Five Eyes partners are saying, make the call. We've been waiting three years. Is that going to happen soon? Yeah, very soon. How soon? I said very soon. So there, we know that it is an important decision to take, and we will be taking it, and the Minister of Innovation is uh, definitely going to take that decision very soon. Okay. Um, would you describe the, the relations with China and democracies around the world as a Cold War, as some in the U.S. have done? Is there a Cold War with China? Um, you know, I, how I see things with China 
is that we know that there's growing influence of China in the world. That's a new reality. And Canada, like all countries in the world, needs to position itself based on this new reality. So that's why the prime minister asked me in his mandate letter to me to develop a new Indo-Pacific strategy to deal with the very complex relationship of China and with China. And Canadians expect our governments to be able to navigate this. So when it comes, for example, uh, on the trading side, we know that we have lots of trade with China and many of the goods we consume every day are made in China. When it comes to human rights, uh, and that was based on many of the questions you asked me, Evan, uh, you know, we know we have to uh, be clear and we have to uh, work in coalition uh, to, to uh, denounce any form of human rights violations. Let's go to the other. We spoke about a Cold War. Russia has amassed 100,000 troops on the eastern Ukraine border. There are clearly concerns about the, an invasion. Canada currently has 200 personnel stationed in western Ukraine in Lviv, as you well know. Would Canada, and the, here's what Ukraine wants from Canada. They would love troops, but they would certainly love weapons or more sanctions. Is Canada prepared to send more troops? And is Canada prepared to send weapons to the Ukraines? So I've had many conversations with my counterpart, uh, Dmitry Kuleba, who's the foreign affairs minister from Ukraine. First and foremost, we call on Russia, along with all NATO allies, to uh, stop their military buildup next to Ukraine's uh, border and also de-escalate. This is fundamental. Second, uh, Canada has been in Ukraine since 2014 through Operation Unifier. That's where we train the military in Ukraine. Yeah. And it is fundamental for Ukrainians to be able right. uh, to have a military force. We'll continue to play that role. And for the rest, uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with the threat that Russia poses right now, that is exactly why I had on Friday an important meeting with all the foreign ministers of NATO, because it is important as an alliance that we show strength and unity and resolve as we're dealing with uh, the fact that Russia is, is, uh, is, has, has to take a decision whether they will really go along and engage into a dialogue with NATO, with the U.S., through the USCE, or will they uh, want us to show deterrence? And okay. that's their choice. I just want to just tr get, try to get a yes or no. Is Canada open to sending weapons to Ukraine? The most important thing right now is really to work with Ukrainians, to deal with their security threats. That's what we'll be doing. My colleague Anita Anand, the defense minister, is actively on this file as well with oh. allies. But at the end of the day, Evan, and answering your question, Ukraine's, Ukraine's security is Europe's security, and therefore it is the world and Canada's security. So that's why right now what is happening at the borders of Ukraine and the eastern flanks, uh, flank of Europe is extremely preoccupying, and that's why we're really engaging. All right, I gotta leave it there. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, always good to have you on the program, thank you. It's a pleasure, Evan, take good care. So what is the best way to stop the Omicron wave? That's the key question. All healthcare leaders in the federal government argue that a third dose of the vaccine, the booster shot, will prevent the hospital systems and the healthcare systems from being overwhelmed. But why is the rollout of boosters 
which are apparently available to everyone, so slow? And what about rapid tests? How urgently are those needed? This week, of course, Prime Minister Trudeau is set to convene yet another call with the Premiers. Will there be an ask for help from the federal government? And if the unvaccinated population are still taking up the majority of beds in the ICUs, what's the best strategy going forward to deal with the unvaccinated? Let's find out. Joining me now is the New Brunswick Premier, Blaine Higgs, who, like so many others, has uh, been hit by COVID and the Omicron. So first of all, Happy New Year, Premier. And before we get on uh, onto the, the, the healthcare situation, how are you? Are you healthy after almost two weeks of this? Well, Happy New Year to you as well, Evan. And um, I'm, I'm improving. I'm still, um, you know, suffering from my head cold, which has been the basic part of what I've had from the beginning. And uh, congestion and, you know, some aches and pains. But for me, it's been like a significant head cold. Still yeah. have that. And my last test a couple of days ago was still positive. So, I, and I have been isolating for a period of time now. I think I'm on day 12 or 13. And I'll continue until I, uh, I test negative. Which is pretty incredible. That's a, that's a man with a booster shot. You still got it, and you're st and and you just always imagine how hard you might be hit without it. Are you worried in New Brunswick about the health system being overwhelmed right now? Well, absolutely, we are. We have you know about 400 people that are out of our system. Some because obviously they have contacted COVID, but others because they've been contacted or or they're a contact of someone who has COVID. So we have you know looking at how we can get them back to work if they're not symptomatic. Can we get asymptomatic people back to work? Um, and getting boosters in arms. I mean, uh, yes, I think about, I'm glad I have my third dose. And, 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 but we have most of our people in hospital, or a good percentage, are uh, obviously unvaccinated altogether. So that, that right. remains to be a big concern. Okay, look, it, it seems now, we're two years into this, Premier, we've got the booster shots available. It seems all we've got is a hurdle. If we can get them in more people's arms more quickly, we could save the healthcare system, prevent it from going being overwhelmed because health leaders say you're largely don't get hospitalized if you got the booster and we could open schools and open businesses. Uh, what do you need to get boosters in arms more quickly? It seems we're, we're on the same pace before this new emergency. It's an emergency. Where's the mass mobilization to get boosters in arms? Well, I think, you know, we, we, that sense of urgency that uh, to get people, you know, we've had some people selecting, say, well, I, 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 we have Moderna available to us. That's what's available, and that is, that's absolutely fine for, for having their booster shots. But some people are saying, well, I'm waiting for Pfizer. Pfizer are being saved for younger folks that, that, it, that it is available to and, and able to use. So one is that, that we can't be selective. Moderna is available. We need to do it. The other certainly is that, that people are, are, you know, we're ramping up the vaccination rates throughout the province. You know, we, we believe we certainly have the capacity to put in the, the vaccines uh, to people that uh, are ready. I do think, to your point, there's an operational requirement there. I mean, we know who got the first and second dose, so we know they will be able to take the third. And, and, and so we're trying to ramp the system up to, to connect with people and have them booked because we cannot wait. But, you know, we found out last week that we had about 10,000, I think, appointments that were not filled uh, because people didn't book. So here we, we cannot go with un, unbooked uh, appointments for vaccinations. Uh, we are seeing now a, a real political debate about how to deal with the unvaccinated, those who just don't want to get the vaccine. Now, now more than 80 to 85 percent of people have one or now two or three vaccinations. Uh, um, but you got Aaron O'Toole saying on one side, we should accommodate those uh, unvaccinated by um, 
using rapid tests. Uh, you've got Quebec, the Quebec government saying, look, we're going to go the other direction. We're going to actually limit access to non-essential services like the SAQ, their liquor store, if you don't have a vaccine passport. And the vaccine passport is going to go from two shots to three shots. How do you deal? Are the unvaccinated taking up the lion's share of the, the hospitalizations and ICUs in your province? And how do you deal with the unvaccinated? Yeah. Well, I'm in the case that if, if you can accommodate, you know, we always thought 90% or so was, at one time we thought 75% was herd immunity, and then it went to 90%. So is 90% the right number? And if we have 90% people that are fully vaccinated and, and continue to be so, and that allows society to function as normally, then that's fine. Then, then that, but we haven't gotten to that point. So if we continually have outbreaks because of the 10% that refuse to be vaccinated, then we have to go to the next level. So I would say accommodation is, you know, you look at flu shots, you look at a lot of things that we do as routine. This needs to be routine, but we have to decide first and know mm. that would that 10% be jeopardizing our health system? And right today, I think because we haven't stabilized with this COVID uh, virus, uh, we don't know that, but that is a key factor on how hard you need to go. But in your province, not only are restaurants and businesses remain open, but they got 50% capacity limits. But in-person learning is delayed until January 21st. I got kids at home. Uh, mm -hmm. So many health experts are saying schools should be uh, the last to close and the first to reopen. There's mental health issues. Uh, young kids aren't really affected by uh, Omicron. And, and that you are, provinces like yours are essentially fighting the last war. You're, you're using solutions for the Delta that don't apply to the Omicron, because it's just different. Why not open schools? The students are well, safe, get, get teachers boosted and get going. I, I think that you've seen all provinces now, just about all provinces, maybe there's a couple exceptions that have delayed their school opening. But I don't disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I think, so again, it comes down to healthcare workers. Uh, what we're trying to do is limit exposure, excuse me, but I agree, students are not impacted. Uh, the, it's a very mild um, virus on, on kids. And I, I think schools need to be open and back at it. But the limitation on how to manage the, the spread through the, the, the strain on hospitals is the driving factor. And it, it, that's what's slowing it down. But we said we're going to assess this every week. And I do believe it's going to rise and fall quickly. The, 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 but it, it's likely what we're projecting. It's going to be through the month of January, peaking sometime towards the end of January. Um, and that'll dictate when schools can open. But I agree, schools should be open and, and accessible. But right now, we're trying to minimize exposure in, in society because hospitals are at risk. And that is our challenge. All right, I got to leave it there. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. Have a good day. New year, old problems. High rates of inflation, you know about those. Housing prices exploding still. And as the fifth wave of COVID keeps hitting harder, what will the impact be on the economy? These questions are again dominating the political discussion as the government tries to fend off attacks from the opposition that they're responsible for all this. But politics aside, at least for a minute here, what should you expect to see in the new year? Is inflation going to rise or actually fall? Is the economy really facing a dangerous housing bubble? Let's find out from a man who spent his entire life on these very issues. Joining me now is David Dodge, the former governor of the Bank of Canada, now a senior advisor at Bennett Jones. First of all, great to see you. Happy New Year. Good to see you uh, in good health, and I hope the family's doing well. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough time. Um, people are very worried about inflation. So, so let's start at the basics. Um, in your view, what is driving the inflation issue? Is it government spending? Is it global supply chains and the pandemic? 
what is causing inflation? Uh, well, Ivan, mean, it, it's good to be back. Um, first, let's start with what's actually happening in terms of the real economy uh, before we talk about, uh, about prices. Uh, I mean, we have had a remarkably rapid recovery uh, from the shock, uh, huge shock uh, of supply restriction uh, that came in the second quarter of, of 2020 and the summer of, of 2020. And part of that good story of doing remarkably well is that uh, markets uh, have had to adjust uh, very quickly. And this has meant that some prices uh, have moved up very sharply uh, in response to the rather stronger, strong demand at the same time uh, as supply limitation due to COVID, either uh, due to the original shock uh, or to subsequent uh, slowdowns uh, or labor shortages. But for a lot of people, they're seeing their grocery bills go up, their housing the ho housing is uh, going up, as you say. Um, everything's going up, gas, groceries. It's expensive to live, and, and there's a real concern about that. So I'll just a basic question. Time on the fiscal side, rein in the spending and let the economy recover on our own, or, or do they need to continue it to make sure the growth continues? What's your view? Well, first of all, I'll come to that in just a second, but, but let's, let's be quite clear. We are probably sitting right now at, at the beginning of, of 2022 at the maximum sort of rate of inflation, year-over-year year, uh, price increase. Uh, we're probably at, at the maximum, and we're going to see that, that decline uh, uh, that in terms of the overall index, we'll see that decline during the course of the year. Um, if only because uh, prices of a number of items have gone up uh, and if they won't go up further, they may come down a little bit. Uh, by the time we get to the end of 2022, um, the year-over-year -year rate of price increase will be back down to 2 or 2.5%, two 2.5%, I think. Um, and probably will stick there at huh. two and a half or, uh, or so percent in, in 2023. Um, uh, so there's a real income loss that people are feeling, uh, and that is to be expected. Look, sir, you, you were the deputy finance minister during Jean Chrétien, where you're fighting deficits. We've got a debt of $1.4 trillion. Uh, we've got deficits that at one time, as you know, were $355 billion. I know they're projected to go down uh, in this uh, coming fiscal year, but does that stuff worry you? Is it time to rein it in or not? The answer, I mean, I'm a former governor and a former deputy minister of finance, and so clearly, clearly uh, one worries uh, and, it, and should worry uh, about the buildup uh, of uh, government debt. But I was, I'm much more worried about what that build up that borrowing is being used for uh, than the build up itself. Um, we, we do need to make major investments, capital investments uh, in this country, both private industry and government, um, as 
we move into a digitized world, into a world where we have to deal with climate change, and into a world where we have uh, an aging population. All of that requires big investment. What is driving the dramatic increase in housing inflation? Is that a result of the stimulus? Um, what's your diagnosis of the housing issue? Yeah. And then we'll get to maybe a possible fix. Go for it. We're continuing to add uh, the, the projection the government wants to add uh, 400,000 plus uh, immigrants every year. Uh, and they all come into our major cities, uh, which is appropriate. Uh, and that means that the, our, the housing demand uh, to how the, the, the need to house people in our major cities is growing very rapidly. And hence, and hence uh, market is adjusting uh, and prices are going up, not just prices of houses, but uh, concomitantly rents are, are going up. So it, it, it's, this is uh, not at, at all surprising uh, that this is, is the uh, issue. Is it due to uh, current fiscal policy? No, uh, that, that, is, that is a factor uh, that is there. Now, what, what is going to happen uh, is that interest rates are going to rise. Uh, we're looking for uh, the Bank of Canada rate at the end of this year to be 0.75 or 1, uh, and certainly to be up to 1.75 by the end uh, of, um, of uh, 2023, uh, all of which is going to push up mortgage rates, which is going to squeeze uh, some people uh, some people out of the market. Um, undoubtedly, that, that, that will happen. I'm going to just go quick, so we're going to do a rapid-fire round. Sir, do you believe Canada is in a housing bubble? No, I think that's what I've just been saying. I think the housing prices are reflecting these underlying factors. Um, and if those underlying factors do not change, the price, uh, upward pressure on prices will continue. And finally, you're sitting down with Krista Freeland. She says, uh, you know, what's the, what's the most important advice you're going to give me in 2022? Uh, practically is that, that if indeed uh, you want to continue to support some of the uh, groups which are being disadvantaged uh, in this COVID practice, then indeed what you better be willing to do is to ask the rest of us that are not so disadvantaged to pay for it now rather than to go out and borrow uh, to support that consumption. Uh, David Dodge, sir, always a pleasure to have you on the program. I always appreciate your insights. Good to talk to you, Evan. And if well, closing down in-class schooling across most provinces was not the way most parents or students wanted 2022 to start, but here we are. Only British Columbia and Alberta will return students to class tomorrow. The rest are delayed. And of those provinces that opted for remote learning, the majority have promised a January 17th return date to class, with the exception of New Brunswick and Newfoundland and Labrador. Now, the reasons for the delays and other restrictions on businesses, well, the rapid rise of Omicron, of course. The strategy is to prevent the hospital systems from being overwhelmed. But if the booster shots are the way out, 
Why is there not a mass mobilization campaign to rapidly accelerate the process across the country? Is closing schools really the right answer with mounting concerns over long-term mental health for students? Is that the way to go? To talk about that, the Scrum is here. Bob Fife, the Globe and Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. So is Stephanie Levitz, reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest this round is Dr. Quadjo Caramente, an ICU and palliative care doctor with the Ottawa and Montfort Hospitals. Uh, first of all, Happy New Year to all of you. Great to have you back. And here we are again, uh, 2022 Redux Doc. I'm going to start with you because you see the pressures directly in the ICUs and the palliative care facilities. And you've also got three kids at home who aren't at school. Is this the right strategy? Are our school closures really the best way to deal with the surge of Omicron and protect the healthcare system? You know, I'll, I'll just be frank. I, I don't agree that this is the best strategy. You know, like you alluded to, some of the devastating impacts we've seen come of school closures, the physical health, the mental health, increasing, you know, depression, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, admissions, all being affected. There's social development and you know, when it comes to Omicron, luckily we know that it's, it's, less vir it's less virulent, less likely to cause severe disease, and we're a heavily vaccinated community. And, you know, the other component that a lot of people don't think about is that, you know, there's a lot of frontline staff that need to be here. Like, with the, one of the concerns is, like, the you know, with Omicron being so high in the community, like, a lot of us have to stay home. And now we have to stay home to watch our kids or to be able to homeschool our kids. Right. And so this is another aspect of the workforce that is, isn't available. And I got to say, we got to really try and think about what is going to be a sustainable approach to this. You know what I'm saying, Evan? Because, like, we can't keep closing down schools. We can't keep interrupting our economy. We can't stop surgeries. We can't stop cancer screening. Like, this is not sustainable. Mm. And we're not talking about a sustainable approach. Like, what... You know, it's, I, I'm sorry I get a little bit jazzed up about it, but it's just we're, we're two years deep and we're still approaching things the exact same way. Right. Well, well, Steph, and you always, generals are always accused of fighting the last war. I, I wonder when provinces are saying we've got to protect the health care system uh, by closing businesses, uh, keeping kids out of class, at least for now. Um, are, are they fighting the last war, the Delta war for the Omicron enemy? Well, how could they not be doing anything but? And I think that for a lot of folks here, they're looking at this situation and saying, you keep telling me the same thing and nothing changes. You keep telling me we have to lock down to protect everything, and then it's going to be okay. It'll be okay if only this. It'll be okay if only that. And it seems so far after two years, it doesn't seem to be getting okay. And what's happening now is a real erosion of public trust because you have premiers coming out saying they're going to close the school system, but they're giving you no evidence for that closure. And not only that, they're giving you no metrics for what are they, how are they going to decide to reopen it? Perhaps if you know public officials had come to the Canadian public and said, listen, we're not really sure what Omicron is going to do. The early data suggests this. We need to wait and see. We need to look at the ICUs. We need to give it two weeks. And at the end of two weeks, if we see X, then we're going to reopen schools. Bob, your view on the politics of this as provinces are, are, are restrictions, then they're blaming the federal government for lack of rapid tests. I know there's 140 million rapid tests coming, but there's enough boosters for everyone. Uh, how do you see this, especially these strategies that are so controversial right now? Look, it's a pox on the, on the federal and, and provincial governments. What the hell were they doing all summer? Uh, did they not expect that there could be another a fifth wave and, or even more? Uh, we should have had N95s ready 
to be given to teachers in, the, in September. We should have had rapid tests for them, which the federal government had bought a lot of them but never delivered them to the provinces. Why, weren't, why did we not uh, put ventilation systems in schools that could have been put in during the summer months? And now we're left with a situation where we've got this uh, Omicron virus that is spreading through our school system and through society, and they're they're closing down schools when they could have they could have had teachers in N95s, they could have rapid tests, they could have ventilation systems, and it's so badly planned, Evan, that our teachers aren't even given priority or students given priorities for the third dose. It's just a colossal failure. Let me swing back to the doctor, Doc. A lot of Canadians are listening to you and say, okay, but then they look at the data. Every day, premiers are coming out, health officials are saying the hospitals are being overwhelmed, the beds are being taken care of. If we don't shut down right now, if there's no circuit breaker, we won't get nurses, we won't get doctors, we won't... Are the so how do you calibrate what you're saying, which is keep schools open, and what a lot of folks are saying is the hospital system's on the verge of collapse. What is the truth from your point of view? You've got a shoe in both uh, sides here. Yeah, I'll, I'll say straight up, like, there is truth to the, the hospitals being busy. Like, there is, but it's multifaceted. Like, it's a lot of people coming in with COVID, that, which they appear less severe than previous waves, luckily. We're having staffing concerns. And, and this is where I think there needs to be a bit of pivoting. Like, we, you know, this is Omicron-led. So do you need to be 10 days of isolation? Do you need to have the same you know, quarantine rules that we've had with previous um, uh, variants. And this is part of the problem about trying to staff the hospital. Second, I want to say is by the time you add this circuit breaker, if it was going to be effective, I, in my opinion, the cat's out of the bag, like Omicron's everywhere. And we and I think mm. our policies need to reflect that. Look, the federal government is keep saying our jurisdiction is to provide boosters. They're here and to provide test. The provinces are the ones in charge of restrictions and lockdowns and school closures and distribution, getting stuff in arms. Um, who, who's, in your view, how is this playing out in terms of accountability from the voter point well, of view? Well, look, both the federal government and the provinces have failed in this latest surge. Uh, they haven't provided, the federal government did not provide enough of the vaccines to the provinces ahead of time, which is why we have these huge lineups everywhere for people trying to get the third dose. They didn't have enough rapid tests to provinces. And then you go to the provinces and the planning is just atrocious. I mean, look at the schools to shut down in Ontario and Quebec. Uh, it's just, and, and other provinces, it's, they have not planned anything. What's the, what is the point, what have the bureaucrats and the federal uh, and, the, and politicians at both levels of government been doing all summer? They, I think they made this assumption that this was all going to pass, that we were out of it, and, and then we got hit with this unknown Omicron uh, vir uh, variant, and it's just thrown everybody off, off stride. All right, I gotta leave it there. Uh, Dr. Karamenting's gotta not only get back to saving people's lives, but he's probably gotta get back to some homeschooling there. Uh, listen, Doc, we always appreciate it. Thank you so much. I don't know when you ever get to sleep. Bob and Steph are gonna stay with us because after the break... So are we at some kind of pandemic political crossroads? That's the question facing all levels of government right now with widespread vaccination rates. Canadians are feeling frustrated as some provinces are reimposing restrictions to protect hospitals against the surging Omicron cases. The goal, of course, to prevent hospital systems from being overwhelmed. But most ICUs are filled largely by the unvaccinated. 
So how to deal with this group, just over 10% of the population? The conservative leader, Aaron O'Toole, is arguing that they should be accommodated using things like rapid tests. Check this out. We can also have reasonable accommodations for some people that may not be vaccinated, particularly in, in jobs like trucking and others, where it can be accommodated without any medical risk. Uh, we have to start having smart management of COVID-19. But in Quebec, there's the opposite view, a more hardline view. Quebec will soon require three doses of its vaccine to get that vaccine passport system, which will eventually be needed if you want to enter things like a liquor store. Check this out. If some people still believe that this doesn't exist, they're the one with a problem. We're there to protect the population and we'll take every means to protect the population. Meanwhile, in an interview with Prime Minister Trudeau in Quebec during the election has reemerged where the Prime Minister compared a small group of unvaccinated people, calling them racists and misogynists. So what's the government's COVID endgame here? Is the unvaccinated issue starting to divide Canadians? What's the politics of all this? The Scrum is back to divvy into that. Bob Fife, the Global Mail's Ottawa Bureau Chief is here. Stephanie Levitz, reporter with the Toronto Star, and our special guest this round, campaign strategist Zane Velji. Uh, great to have you all here. Zane, welcome to the program. And, I, and I'll start with you. Um, how do you deal with the politics of the unvaccinated? Because it's certainly now emerging that there's very divergent views on this. Yeah, it's, it's a great question from the perspective of how the federal government particularly deals with this. And we've seen the lane that Trudeau has picked. The swim lane he's picked has been very clear that he has gone to the point of outright demonizing the unvaccinated. And that plays well. It played well in an election. It probably even plays well when you have 85% plus of Canadians you know, vaccinated and are probably, quote unquote, on your side with that. But it actually is a distraction because the politics of vaccination is, or especially with the unvaccinated, is easy politics. It's politics that lets you win the day, lets you go after a group where 80% of Canadians are perhaps on your side. But then what? And I think what's happening here with the politics of, of the unvaccinated is that we're losing our eye on the third dose march that we need. The, the hypervigilance, the ambition the leadership needed on third doses is being lost because the easy, quick win right. is focusing at the unvaccinated. Well, it was interesting, Steph, so, so calibrate that. And let's just focus on the politics because Aaron O'Toole in his very first press conference last week uh, in the new year had this notion that we got to accommodate the unvaccinated. He's concerned about, you know, staffing shortages and face reality, accommodate the unvaccinated. That became a political football. How do you, what do you make of what he's saying about this? So uh, accommodate them. His idea is that they ought to be rapid tested and rapid tests will clear them to safely return to work. And you know what? Perhaps they will, because many of us now who are double vaccinated or boosted are also using rapid tests to ensure that we're healthy. But you know what doesn't happen with a rapid test? It doesn't keep you out of the ICU. Vaccines keep you out of the ICU. The unvaccinated are the ones, you know, more or less ending up in the ICU in record numbers. They are the ones putting the strain on the healthcare system. So I don't understand how accommodating them with rapid tests solves the problem we have, which is that our healthcare system is on the verge of collapse. And that's why we're all locked down. Okay, Bob, and then the other, we're seeing again, we're seeing Mr. O'Toole emerge saying that Justin Trudeau's normalizing lockdowns and restrictions. Now, look, it's obvious that that's not you know, restrictions and lockdowns are provincial jurisdiction, not federal jurisdiction. What do you make of what he's saying both about the unvaccinated and about the, the normalization of restrictions and lockdowns? 
Well, look, I, I think uh, Aaron O'Toole is um, out to lunch, frankly. Uh, there are seven million people in this country who have not had one dose. And they are causing, as Stephanie said, all of these uh, hospitalizations. And it's, 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 it is a crisis in the, in the healthcare system because people who are unvaccinated and refuse to get vaccinated uh, will not, uh, are, are the ones who are, uh, are clogging up our ICU and our hospitals. So I, I think that uh, he is completely wrong to argue that we do the rapid test. And I think Stephanie said it very well. The point, of the, the point that I think that Premier Legault, who, by the way, is a conservative, is making, the, is making a strong point is that we shouldn't be giving any uh, credit to these people. If, they do, if the vac unvaccinated need, want a, a bottle of booze, they have to get vaccinated to go into uh, a liquor store. But Zane, it's a knife's edge. Uh, look, we saw that party plane and the Sunwing party plane, people vaping and partying. That became the big story, what to do, how do you treat them? Uh, you seen the Quebec line that Bob's talking about. And then that video of Justin Trudeau saying these small group are racist. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look, we get the numbers that Steph's and, and Bob have just described, but at what point does this become incredibly divisive? Because frustration's overwhelming, and, and does this risk actually having long-term divisive consequences on, uh, on Canadians and their rights? I think, we're already, I think we're already there. I think the election where Justin Trudeau stood up and, and talked about the unvaccinated in, in such a divisive way as the leader of the country, uh, I, as someone who has progressive leanings, found that pretty offensive. Uh, because of the downstream effects, because of the division. And I know, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to defend the unvaccinated here. I'm saying let's take stock of the larger picture of ensuring third doses are given. As it relates to the politics of, of those that are unvaccinated, we need to be careful in terms of how we communicate. I think the tone here is very, very important, which is how do you want to deal with these individuals who are part of your society, who in this moment in time are being defined by one thing and one thing alone, and then hammering them every single day because the politics of it is easy. It's, it's, it's uh, relatively uh, valuable. You gain political capital from doing it. There's so much more to be said right. about what happens downstream and how they segment off from society well, going forward. Sorry, sorry I got to jump also, in. I got to jump I mean, in here. I think you're, you're completely wrong on that. Look, the 7 million people have not been vaccinated. They're causing uh, an increase in, cough, uh, in hospitalization. They're causing, causing a closure in schools. Uh, we need to do everything we possibly can to get these people to have third doses. And politicians of all political stripes should be supportive of that. But what I, are I we mean, that also just sad, though. Like the, the, the idea that Justin Trudeau is selling this racist, misogynistic, that's who unvaccinated people represent. The earliest studies on vaccine hesitancy throughout the Canadian population and indeed the world suggest that it is some of the most racially and otherwise marginalized groups in society Bingo. who are the most vaccine hesitant. So for That's him exactly to, just, to, to just destroy that group with like, it, it, I don't know, it, that doesn't make sense because what we know about vaccine hesitancy is it comes in all sorts of shapes, but a large number of the folks hesitant are hesitant because of how they've been treated by the healthcare system in the past. I'm not writing them a blank check here. It's not a get out of jail free card, but for the prime minister who, you know, talks a lot about inclusivity and, and welcoming everybody to use that kind of language felt very offside. Uh, uh, just and, real? and not just about how they've been treated with the healthcare system, how they've been treated with systems overall. 
with authority overall in the past. So I, I have a bit of sympathy and understanding of so where they're coming from. But Bob, to your point, if the prime minister or other politicians simply demonize and say, celebrate my outcomes. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not defending. Well, hang on here, Zan. I'm not defending uh, Justin Trudeau's comments. They were way out of I line. Agree, I agree. But I'm agree, talking but about the fact that that there are 7 million people who have not been vaccinated and we need we need to get them to have that to have a third uh, to get vaccinated so that we will be safer for people in our society we absolutely are, agree aren't on the same page. I think the question here, though, is are we going to celebrate politicians who just demonize and, and no. put out outputs, say, get vaccinated, versus actually saying, what are the outcomes? What's the actual way to persuade and convince individuals? Spending that disproportionate energy on them, I think, is useful, but it is right. not the entire plan here during a third wave where even those individuals where we know if we get third doses, we can get out of this thing on the back end as a society without the further right. divisions and fractures that exist already. Boy, 2022, this is what people who actually agree sound like. Imagine what people who disagree sound like. Uh, Zane Valji, Bob Five, Steph Levitz. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you. This is a real key concern. Here we are still talking about COVID, still talking about vaccines. And there's questions about the economy, and we've talked about those today as well. But that is question period for this week. We will be back here in seven short days if it's safe to do so, and we sure hope it is. Hug your loved ones. I will see you back here tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern, on CTV's Power Play. And I'll see you here next week.